0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. you'd open your Bible to Psalm 24, we will be looking at the psalm that immediately follows 23, which we looked at last week. We haven't done that very often in this series on the Psalms. We haven't followed them in sequential order. We did it once before, and we looked at Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. And In some ways, Psalm 23 and 24 reflect the themes that we find in Psalm 1 and 2, so it's appropriate that we would regard them both together as we are now. So hear the word of the Lord, Psalm 24, a Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord. And righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him. Who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates. And be lifted up, O ancient doors. That the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. And lift them up, O ancient doors that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Father, you are the king of glory. We behold your glory this morning and ask that you would open our eyes to it, that we might see. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Some of my favorite psalms in the Psalter are the ones that give us hints at the liturgy of ancient Israel. When we read them, we can't help but imagine what it would have been like to worship with Israel in those days. Psalm 24 is one of those Psalms. It's probably familiar to many of you because we use the the last stanza verses 7 through 10, as a call to worship here at Grace pretty frequently. It is one of my favorite calls to worship from the Old Testament that we use. As a result, you have a feel already for the the liturgical qualities of the text. When you hear the questions being called out, who is this King of Glory? And then you hear the responses, the Lord of Hosts, he is the king of glory. It's easy to picture in your mind a church service. In fact, those verses, scholars say, were probably used in a very particular service that is recounted for us in 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6 is when the Ark of the Covenant is returned to Jerusalem during the reign of King David. That's the chapter where poor Uzzah reaches out his hand to steady the Ark And uh, dies as a result. The theory is that these were the words that would have been spoken as the ark was entering through the gates of Jerusalem. That the gatekeepers on the city walls called out the question, who is the king of glory? And that the bearers of the ark of the covenant and perhaps the people all around shouted out the response, the Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. Psalm 24 presents some challenges to us as well. If you look at the psalm in your order of worship or in your Bible, you see that it's divided into three stanzas, three parts. The second and third end in those selahs that kind of mark the the divisions for you. What's challenging about that is figuring out how the three parts are related to one another because at first reading, it kind of seems like three different songs. If you look at verses 1 and 2, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, it looks like you're dealing with a creation hymn to Yahweh, praising him for making all things. But then when you look at the second stanza, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, there it seems like you're dealing with a, a psalm about righteousness, the importance of righteousness. In fact, if you flip over to Psalm 15, it's a short psalm, but the entire psalm is devoted to the same question of worthiness, the necessity of righteousness. And then we get that third section, which seems like a responsive liturgy for entering into the temple. Now, we know from tradition that Psalm 24 was used in Israelite worship on a particular day. Psalm 24 was used oftentimes on the day following the Sabbath. Significantly, the day following the Sabbath, if you think about that, would be the Sunday. In other words, the Lord's Day, which I find suggestive. Also, you notice that, as I mentioned earlier, the the emphasis on righteousness on the one hand and kingship on the other, that you see in the introduction to this altar in Psalms 1 and 2, is reflected here in the second and third stanzas, that you have one, where there's an emphasis on righteousness, and then the next emphasizes kingship, just as the beginning of the Psalter does. It's all fascinating stuff that you can glean as you reflect on the song. I took voice lessons in college. Um, As a result, I don't sing very well, but I know what it's like. I was not a very good student. I didn't have a great gift at singing, but I had a voice teacher who was desperate for students, and every semester she convinced me to sign up. She eventually cast me in an opera production, but as a mute. And that says all you need to know about my abilities. But one thing I picked up was this, that oftentimes, especially for a modern student, if you're going to sing ancient songs, you need someone to explain to you what they mean, what the significance of the word is, or if you think of it in a different contexts, like maybe theater or acting, you need someone to explain the characters motivations to you. Like, why would you sing this? What is the heart of these words? So to sing the song, the way that, that we're called to sing it, we have to know what it means. We have to know how these three pieces tie together. What's the common thread that unifies Psalm 24. Now, How you answer that question depends a lot on where you stand in history. At the time of David and the days of David, they might've answered it differently and understood it differently. But now we stand on the other side of the cross. And when we look back to Psalm 24, there's a very clear unifying thread between the three passages. And that unity comes from Jesus Christ. Now we can look at Psalm 24 and we see the king of glory entering the temple in triumph and recognize that he is the same pure and righteous one who is worthy to ascend to the heights of Mount Zion. And indeed, he is the same one who reigns over creation because all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. If you have the eyes of faith, then look back at Psalm 25. You see that what holds it all together is Jesus. Thus, in Psalm 24, the reason that we sing, it's really simple. We sing because the Lord of creation brings order to your chaotic world. We sing because the Lord of righteousness brings order to your disordered lives. We sing because the Lord of glory is coming to you in victory. Let's look at the first stanza. Remember that the Lord of creation brings order to your chaotic world. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world and those who dwell therein for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Why is the earth the Lord's? Why does everything in creation belong to him? Because he made it. Because he is its creator. All creation, the earth, the world, its inhabitants belong to God because he made them. And by right, you possess whatever you make. When you make something, when you create something, that thing that you've made is yours. Whatever you make is yours to possess. If that's true, then everything is his. Because he made everything and he made it out of nothing, which is a way of making that none of us are capable of. So God possesses the world in its entirety, including us, because he is the creator. But that creativity grants a special kind of possession to God. It's more than just the the right of possession that comes through making, but creativity grants a special kind of ownership when you think about it. When you create something, not only do you possess it and own it, but you determine its purpose. You determine its meaning. You determine its true interpretation. I often think of the way that when young children are first learning to do art, they're drawing their first pictures, everyone starts off as an abstract expressionist. No one's very good at traditional figurative drawings, but we're really good at abstraction and and, uh, and, and sometimes terrifying abstraction. But when a child shows you their work of abstract expressionism, you know that it actually is representative of something. Because if you ask the question, well, what is this a picture of? It turns out it's something. It's a castle or it's a dinosaur or it's a flower or something that you as the beholder literally cannot interpret for yourself. But when the creator reveals its purpose, you know what it means. When we sing, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, we are celebrating not only the fact that God made everything, but that he possesses it and interprets it. In other words, things are what God says they are, including us. Our purpose, our meaning comes from him because he made us. Creation is what he says it is our purpose, our identity come from him just as our life does. He has founded it, the psalm says, upon the seas and established it upon the rivers, which is interesting from a structural standpoint. A solid house needs a firm foundation. You would never build a house on water. That would be worse than building your house on sinking sand. So what does it mean to say that God has established creation on the waters in this way, on the seas and the rivers? What is the psalmist getting at? Well, this language should bring a bell in your mind. It should remind you of Genesis chapter one and the creation account there. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and the ancient minds. The water, the sea, represents a kind of chaos, unpredictability, change, insubstantiality, formlessness. To say that God has established creation on top of what is essentially chaos is saying something. That in the act of creation, God has demonstrated his power that God can establish the world on a foundation that no one else could build upon, that God brings order out of chaos. It's profound, the implications of that. And think about this. How can you imagine that the God who established the earth, who brought order, like we see around us out of chaos, somehow lacks the power to rule over what he made. If he could, create all things and possesses all things, how could we ever doubt that he lacks the power to govern them and to do it well? If there's one human emotion that Psalm 24 leaves no room for, it is hopelessness. Because the God who brings order to creation will bring order to our chaos too. That's where the second stanza comes in. The Lord of righteousness brings order to your disordered lives. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him. Who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Who can ascend? The seekers of Yahweh. Those who seek the face of Yahweh, the God of Jacob. You can see within this stanza, there's another kind of three-part structure. There's a question in verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? And then the answer comes in verses 4 and 5. He who has clean hands and a pure heart and so on. And that answer is interesting because it echoes the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Those who seek the face of the God of Jacob, the pure in heart will see him. That answer also has a kind of negation in it. He who does not lift up his soul to what is false, who does not swear heedfully and those qualifiers may sound at first like just a general endorsement of honesty and it's good to be truthful that sort of thing i think there's more to it than that if you think of the idea of lifting up the soul to what is false what this suggests is idolatry it's false worship those who lift up their souls to what is false those who seek other saviors those who are ruled by other kings besides the lord the God of creation, those who swear deceitfully, those, in other words, not only who who are deceptive in their commitments, but are, let's say, covenant breakers, those who do not keep their obligations. A person who lifts up his soul to what is false and swears deceitfully does not have clean hands or a pure heart. And thus cannot ascend the hill of the Lord. And the third part in verse 6 is a kind of affirmation. Such is the generation of those who seek him. They're not lifting up themselves to a false God. They are seeking the true God. And that seeking is affirmed. Those who seek him will find him. Those who seek him can ascend the hill of the Lord. In other words, Zion. So who can ascend? Those who seek Yahweh, the true God. But who can ascend really? Because are we really pure? You get as uncomfortable as I do when we reach these moments in the Psalms where in order to sing the Psalm, you find yourself declaring yourself righteous You find yourself saying, I am one of the righteous. I have clean hands and a pure heart, and thus I can ascend to Zion. Does that make you a little bit nervous? Because it makes me a little bit nervous to sing those words. Because I worry, as I'm sure you do, that as much as I seek the face of the Lord, I also stumble. We Stumble into idolatry. We put our trust in the wrong Saviors. If all that we can claim is the sanctifying work of the Spirit, then how bold of a pilgrim can you really be when it comes to ascending to Mount Zion? The answer is not much. It is Christ who is really pure. And when we see Christ in Psalm 24, The way you sing those words changes utterly. The way to sing these words is to sing them picturing yourself in Christ. Ascending side by side with him. No one sought the face of the father like the son. Remember when we looked at Psalm 2. Those words of the decree spoken by the father, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He has the right to ascend. He is the one who is meant to be seated, enthroned on Zion. And you can ascend to Zion in confidence when you travel in the company of its king, You can enter where only the pure at heart may go when your heart has been cleansed by the blood of the covenant. Think about this. How can you imagine that the king who brings you pure to Zion somehow cannot give you wisdom and grace to navigate this life? The gospels ring with the incredulous laughter of Jesus when he encounters people who somehow think that it is easier to say, rise and walk, than it is to say, rise, your sins are forgiven. And yet we constantly make this mistake, thinking that the salvation we have in Christ is, is an easier thing than the grace to live in this life faithfully. But it's not the case. Jesus Christ, the King of Zion, who we travel with, who has made us pure by his blood, will bring order to your disordered life by the power of the Spirit. He will do this. Trust in him because he is victorious. He is the Lord of glory and he is coming to you in victory. We see that final stanza, that drama, the back and forth dialogue that is acted out in verses 7 through 10. I can't hear those words without getting goosebumps, without wanting to be there, wanting to shout those words. It makes me think of the triumphal entry when the prophecy of Zechariah and Zechariah 9 was fulfilled. John quotes this in his gospel in John 12, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming. Jesus was entering Jerusalem on his way to death when these words were fulfilled. The king was coming, but he was entering through the gates in order to encounter his death. But he was on his way to victory, to triumph. None of the rulers of this age understood this, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The gates of Jerusalem were opened and the Lord of glory entered in, in order to be victorious. That victory, the Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. That victory is what Psalm 24 culminates in. These days, the picture of God that you see throughout the Psalms as a victorious warrior is a little bit problematic. Modern day people, uh, including Christian people, are uncomfortable with the idea of God as a God of of force. as a God who makes war on his enemies. This just isn't a way that we're accustomed to thinking about God. So as a result, when we get to these passages They can be challenging to us. Why? Because we don't know what it's like to have a mortal enemy. We live lives of relative comfort. We don't know what it's like to be hunted, to be oppressed. To those who have that experience, the idea of God as a warrior, as a conqueror, as a king who brings justice for his people is not as difficult, is not as problematic as it is for those of us who don't have that experience. We don't have an enemy to fight, or at least we have one, but we have essentially made peace with him already. We've surrendered. All too often, our condition is one of collaboration. The enemy has overwhelmed us. He occupies our territory, and we have made peace with it and don't think of it anymore as a conflict. So that when God speaks of himself as a a victor, a winner of battles, we don't think we need that because we're so comfortable with the occupation that we're not looking for deliverance. And yet, Jesus Christ entered into history in order to fight a battle, to win a victory that puts every paltry human conflict into the category of mere foreshadowing. Jesus Christ came to triumph over the ultimate enemy of humanity, over sin and over death. And by enduring the violence of death, Christ entered into it and then blew it apart from the inside and emerged triumphant. So that he is the Lord of glory, he is the victor. And we can throw open the gates. To welcome him. The Father's chosen king has won the fight and sits enthroned in glory upon Mount Zion. Of course, we can only ever speculate about the original circumstances. We don't even know for certain that the words of Psalm 24 were written specifically for this moment in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And if we must speculate, then I'm going to suggest that you set that account aside for a moment and think of another example instead. You'll find this one in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with human hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, the Ark of the Covenant being returned to Jerusalem. Think about the significance of that event and the Ark of the Covenant inside that golden box. You had some amazing artifacts. The the, the tablets of the law that God had inscribed, the, the manna that he had sustained his people with in heaven, the budding staff of Aaron, all of these were signs. They were symbols of God's covenant with Israel, hence the name Ark of the Covenants. They signified, they testified to God's faithfulness. They signified God dwelling with his people at Zion. But the events that the author of Hebrews describes in Hebrews 9 are not signs. They are reality. Christ is not entered into places made of human hands, human temples that merely point to a higher reality. Instead, he has entered into the reality. Jesus, our royal high priest, has entered victorious into the true temple, not made with human hands. And he has triumphed through sacrifice. That's what I picture when I sing the words at the end of Psalm 25, the gates of heaven opening up as the Lord of creation and righteousness and glory comes to claim his throne. And I picture us who follow with him, entering into Zion in his company, in his wake. Who is this king of glory? It is the Lord Jesus. That's our confession of faith at its simplest, the earliest form of any confession of faith in the Christian religion. These words, Jesus is Lord. There is no chaos. There's no disorder that can threaten us because Jesus is Lord. So lift up your heads. And open up your gates to Christ, your King. As Psalm 24 says, you belong to him. But because you don't have clean hands and a pure heart, you cannot come to him apart from Christ. But now Christ has come. Christ has purified us. So lift up your heads and open your gates and let the King of glory take you to Zion.